Let's pray. Father, it is with deep humility, but bold confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ that I stand to proclaim His Word. Give me Your help. Give Your people help as they uh, hear this Word and uh, apply it to their lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe it is appropriate and probably necessary to say a few words about uh, the First Baptist Church uh, shooting last Sunday in Sutherland Springs as we commence this sermon on the day of prayer for the persecuted church. When I heard about the shooting last Sunday afternoon, I was sickened. This shooting was not an act of domestic violence. I noted how several news outlets tried to tie this to the fact that the shooter's ex-wife's parents went to that church and therefore implied this was his sole motivation. But there's ample evidence of his hatred of Christianity. I do not doubt that the fact that his ex-in-laws went to this church influenced his, um, his choice of which church to attack. But to me, this was clearly an attack on Christianity. You just don't intentionally shoot small children as witnesses have described him doing if you are mad at your in-laws. It is undeniable that a growing animosity towards Christianity exists in our culture. Now, I don't think that there are going to be a wave of church shootings uh, to follow what happened in Sutherland Springs. But I do believe that the shooter was influenced and even emboldened by the anti-Christian spirit of our culture. That being said, I do not think a widespread violent persecution will break out against Christians in the United States anytime soon. The anti-Christian spirit of our culture is not as great as it seems. It is magnified only because much of the secular media, certain politicians, and most universities speak as if everyone in America is antagonistic against Christianity. A final word and then I'll move on to our text. I want to assure the congregation that our session takes the safety and security of our services very seriously. We will be addressing our security plan this Tuesday at our session meeting. That being said, let's move on to the rest of the sermon. According to the United States Department of State, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their government or from their surrounding neighbors simply because of their belief in Jesus Christ. Now unfortunately, many of these 60 countries are some of the most populated countries on the face of the earth. Persecution is more more than being killed for your faith. Persecution involves verbal harassment and hostile feelings. And of course, hostile feelings usually result in hostile actions. Beatings, physical torture, confinement, isolation, rape, 
severe punishment, imprisonment, slavery, discrimination in, in education and employment, and even death are just a few examples of the persecution that Christians experience on a daily basis all around the world. I chose uh, this passage, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through chapter 8, verse 5, as our text this morning because I wanted us to see how God treats His children who, en- who endure severe persecution. I believe this passage speaks to a specific historical period. Uh, specifically, according to Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, the period that is being spoken of here is the period following the Great Tribulation. So if you look at verse um, 14 in uh, chapter 7, the Apostle John said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So, this is the period being spoken of. However, the message that God is sending in this passage transcends historical specificity. I practice this so many times. Specificity? Oh, it's so easy when you don't have all these eyes looking at you. Uh, it doesn't, it transcends historical time periods. This is a message God is sending to all Christians throughout all the ages who have or who will suffer persecution. Revelation chapter 7 in the entire scope of the book of Revelation is an interlude. It's a pause in the action in the book of Revelation. The sixth seal was opened at the end of chapter 6 and the seventh seal is not opened until the beginning of chapter 8. Chapter 7 is a pause in the action because as the first six seals have been opened, Many Christians have died horrendous deaths as a result of their testimony of faith in Christ Jesus. So if you want to peek back real quickly to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, where Christ opened the fifth seal, you'll see the souls of the martyrs under the altar. Why are they under the altar? Well, what happens on top of the altar? Well, there are animals that are sacrificed in the Old Testament um, in the temple, the, the animals were sacrificed on the altar. So then when the animals are sacrificed on top of the altar, what is underneath the altar? The imagery, well, the blood is under the altar. The blood pools under the altar. And so the imagery here in Revelation chapter 6 is that the souls of the martyrs have pulled under the altar. And this imagery is confirmed in verse 10 when the martyrs ask God, how long until their blood will be avenged? Note that each was given a white robe. And that's going to be important for identifying the multitude that we read about in chapter 7. So look with me at Revelation chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Uh, When he opened the fifth seal, 
I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then they were given each a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In our passage in chapter 7, verses 9-17, through 17, there's a great multitude that no one could number. And they are dressed in white robes. In verse 13, one of the elders up in heaven asked the the Apostle John about the identity of those who are dressed in the white robes. And we know who they are because we just read chapter 6. They are the martyrs. They were killed for their testimony to Christ during the Great Tribulation. Now, if this is true, then verse 9 is making a stunning statement. The severe persecution is deep and it is widespread, more widespread than what we typically think. They are described as a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. You know, when we get to heaven... I believe we will find that countless Christians were martyred throughout the ages. But the record of their faithfulness went unrecorded in the pages of history. They died in anonymity, but they were known to God. And that is true today as well. In fact, just yesterday there was a news report uh, where they found uh, a newly discovered mass grave with 400 victims from ISIS. How many mass graves will go undiscovered? But God knew about every one. In verse 9, we also learn that glorious peace awaits those who suffer persecution. Palm branches were the symbols of peace in Jewish culture. So the martyred saints here in verse 9 are pictured with palm branches in their hands. Look at the second half of verse 9. It says, They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They lived being hated by their neighbors, by their governments. And they died violently. But glorious peace is their eternal possession. That's what this is pictured here when they are uh, pictured as holding palm branches in their hands. In verses 10 and 11, we learn that persecuted Christians will be worship leaders in heaven. In verse 10, when they lift their voices to God in praise, then all the angels and all the elders and the four living creatures follow their lead and fall on their faces before the throne of God and worship the Lord. So look at verses 10 and 11. 
and crying out with a loud voice. These are the ones robed in white, or clothed in white robes. These are the martyrs. And, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and all the angels standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You know, this is remarkable. These persecuted Christians are worshiping God. They are worshiping God instead of asking, why did we have to suffer when we were on earth? In God's presence, they will behold His glory and they will understand with unclouded vision that God is good in everything that He has ordained, in everything that He has ordered. He is good even in their martyrdom. What if you were a parent and had a daughter who was kidnapped by ISIS to be used as a sex slave? I'd be tempted to ask God, why did you let this happen? But knowing God and beholding His glory brings everything into sharper, into clear focus. In verse 15, we learn that the persecuted Christians will be the ones who are closest to the throne. They are so close that God's shadow, as He's sitting on the throne, will act as their shelter. And they will have the privilege of serving God night and day. Look at verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. And then it's easy to overlook the meaning of verse 16. Verse 16 says, And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. The hunger and the thirst and the constant exposure to the heat of the sun is a common experience for God's persecuted children. In many of the poorer nations where persecuted, the persecution of Christians takes place, the government will deny Christians food, they'll deny them gainful employment, and oftentimes they will displace them from their homes. The Huffington Post of all of all places says that there were 30 major famines during the 20th century. And all of the famines happened in countries led by autocratic rulers or were under armed conflict. In other words, the famines were man-made to inflict suffering. That's why verse 16 specifically states that they will never hunger or thirst or be exposed to any scorching heat. That their plight on earth for all eternity will never be again. In verse 17, God makes it abundantly clear 
that persecuted Christians will be His special treasure. Listen to the tenderness with which God will treat His dear saints who are mistreated for His name here on earth. Verse 17, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Those who suffer here on earth will be nearest to God, and God Himself will be their comforter. The beginning of chapter 8 um, is the opening of the seventh seal. When the last seal is opened, there's silence in heaven for half an hour, it says. Why is that the case? I think Leon, Leon Morris is right when he says, the saints appear insignificant to men at large, but in the sight of God they matter. Even great cataclysms are held back while they pray, and the praises of angels give way to silence so that the saints may be heard. That is exactly what is happening here when the seventh seal is opened. The prayers of the saints are mixed with incense, with, as it says literally, much incense to signify how effective their prayers are to God, how pleasing their prayers are to God as their their prayers ascend before God. It's like a sweet-smelling aroma. And the prayers are then mixed with fire from the altar and thrown down upon the earth. So uh, follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 5 in chapter 8 real quickly. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. What was the content of their prayers? The content of their prayers unfolded with the seven trumpets that were being blown in chapters 8 through 11. We could summarize the seven trumpets in a threefold manner. These seven trumpets resulted, first of all, in great judgment upon the people who persecuted God's children. Secondly, these trumpets ushered in the great success of the preaching of the gospel. It was unstoppable. It was spreading in spite of the persecution, in spite of the best efforts of the world to try and hinder the gospel. And then thirdly, these trumpets revealed God's ongoing, close, intimate presence among His persecuted saints. From this passage, it should be clear to us that our prayers for the persecuted saints 
are mixed with the worldwide prayers of the church. People praying for the persecuted saints in Asia and in the Middle East and Africa and around the world. Our prayers are being joined up in the and are placed on the altar to arise before God. And they are infused with much incense, which I think is symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit because He takes our weak and puny prayers and He empowers them with God's help so that as they arise before God, the weakness of our prayers is not noticed, but rather it's a powerful aroma, a pleasing aroma in God's nostrils. Brothers and sisters, our prayers for the persecuted church make a difference. They are not lifted up and faded and, and, and fade away into the atmosphere. They ascend before God Himself. And we see from these five verses that God unfolds history according to the prayers of His saints. As you read the book of Revelation, and for that matter, as you read the whole of Scripture, there are two truths that stand side by side, but in our finite minds, they stand in tension. The first truth is, God promises to take care of His saints' daily needs. We read in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, that if you put the kingdom of God as your first priority, everything you need for life and for godliness will, be, will surely be given to you. However, we also read another truth that in our minds might seem in tension with that promise. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul promises that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And this will likely result in them being denied what they need to live. Which is what God promised that they would have in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. The Lord Jesus Christ embodies this tension. His heavenly Father abundantly provided everything that Jesus needed. But at the very same time, the Son of Man had no place to lay His head as He was God's suffering servant. You know, I think our passage in Revelation chapter 7 and 8 was included to address this tension and to encourage saints who are suffering harm and doing without for their faith in Jesus Christ to keep their faith fixed on Jesus. As we pray and remember our suffering brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering for their testimony in Christ, I exhort you to remember our Lord Jesus Christ and to seek Him for grace to recalibrate your life, to embody that same tension as you seek first His kingdom as your priority and trust Him to live here on earth as strangers and pilgrims on your way to 
to His glorious eternity. If you want help praying for that, the quotes on the front of the bulletin will be helpful in that regard. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, again we not only lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering persecution, but Lord, we also lift up ourselves. Help us not to be lulled into sleepiness because of the ease of life and the abundance of provision that we have here in our culture. Lord, help us to seek Your kingdom. I pray that Your gospel and the extension and, and, uh, and proclamation of Your kingdom would be our priority. Lord, help us. I fear that we might be like that salt that has lost its saltiness and is good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men. Preserve us from that, God. Help us to be kingdom-focused and bring glory and honor to Yourself through us and through our brothers and sisters around the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.